How many people here have had some kind of training in listening? Any kind at all, yeah? Okay, a number of you. Mindfulness-based stress reduction gives you some of that. Um, I first encountered it in parent effectiveness training. You would think listening would come naturally, but really, in its full depth, it's a, it's a skill that we need to develop. And I find that I need to have reminders, too, because I think the agenda that's running internally has so much momentum behind it, and also that self that wants to be seen and heard and take over when someone else is talking. <laughs> Needs a little guidance. You know? <laughs> so, of course, there's this opportunity that we have whenever there's someone speaking in front of us to really listen to really listen with our whole self, um, make our whole being become an ear, and let go of whatever else is happening, just put it down. Well, of course, our practice in mindfulness and meditation is a perfect kind of training to listen. And it takes intention to listen well. And it takes attention to listen well. And when we do, one of the things that we might notice in the person who we're listening to is that they become more alive. And perhaps even more creative and, and almost always more comfortable and more able to let them, themselves shine. So that's a beautiful thing to observe. And something I've noticed myself, particularly if I'm listening to someone who has a lot they need to say, if I'm really, really present engaged, then when that ends, it feels like I've meditated. It's got that same quality of calm. So I've come to believe that it really can be a meditation to be fully open and listening, available, to support that other person who's the most important person in the world right now when they're in front of you. And then, wouldn't it be lovely to listen to ourselves in the same way, with that kind of caring, rather than the this, this sort of sense, censorship that goes on? <laughs> I mean... I want to be clear about this. We need to be discerning in what we listen to. 
So everything I've been describing so far is really what I think of as kind of normal, you might say mundane listening. But when we really look at what the Buddha taught, then the kind of listening that he gave and he taught really was a listening that has discernment behind it. Because it isn't true that everything is appropriate to listen to. And it's important to be clear about what the appropriate things are to listen to and what aren't. So one key uh, is right speech, looking at what is involved in appropriate speech. You know, that it's true. That it's not divisive. That it's not idle chatter. That it's not harsh. When the Buddha talked to the monks and nuns, he said that we should avoid talking about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms and battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, the countryside, women and heroes, or men and heroes if you're on the nun side of things, the gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead, philosophical discussions of the past and the future, the creation of the world and of the sea, and talk of whether things exist or not. <laughs> that cuts down on things. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the words that jumped out in there to me is the gossip. And of course... That's one of the things that is helpful to be discerning around. The dictionary I have at the monastery says that gossip is rumor or talk of a personal, sensational, or intimate nature. Or another definition is trivial, chatty talk or writing. So the the Buddha said not to, you know, not to listen to what is said here and then run over there and repeat it. Especially to not repeat things that are going to divide these people from each other. So as a listener, we have to be aware of what we're taking in. So what do you do when that's happening in front of you? Well, we can look to the Buddha for the way he worked with people. And he was a master. And he had so many different kinds of people come to him. He listened to kings, queens, the the elite of the society, all the way down to the outcasts. Not that I like that up and down thing, but, you know, it's how it laid out, especially in the ancient India, and many places still today. But the Buddha, he listened, and his criteria for whether or not he would interrupt this was really around 
the appropriateness of it or whether the person was really going off in the wrong way. Out of compassion, to not let somebody, you know, believe that what they're saying is true when it's not. Or allow them to be abusive or harsh. So there's one example of, of a time when he was near a certain town and um, the Brahmins, uh, the Brahmin caste is the spiritual caste and the spiritual leaders. And there was a big push at that time. The caste system wasn't as developed as it is now in India, but there was a big push during that time when the Buddha was alive to elevate the Brahmins above the nobles. So you see a lot of that rhetoric in the, in the canon. And the, the Brahmins, there were um, a couple of the Brahmins from that town who decided they, they had come to listen to the Buddha talk and they were very moved and inspired and they ordained. And then one of the other Brahmins in the village got very angry about this and he came out to see the Buddha and he was just blasting the Buddha with criticism. And the Buddha said, so tell me, do you, do you ever have people come over to your house? And he said, well, yes. And, well, do they, do they um, ever bring gifts, food to, to share? And he says, well, yeah. He said, well, what happens if you don't accept their gifts? Who does it belong to? Well, it, it belongs to them. They have to take it back home. The Buddha said, I'm not accepting your gift. It's yours. (laughs) All that criticism you just blasted me with, it's it's yours. It's, It's unfounded. So the Buddha also taught, and it's very clear in the monastic code, how important it is to be open to listening to criticism. So that's one of the hardest times to listen. It's when somebody's telling telling us that we're, you know, not doing something right or we are doing something that's not right or we're not doing something we should be doing. And so the Buddha really said, you know, be easy to speak to when someone has something like that to say. But obviously you also have to be discerning around whether or not it's true, whether or not it's... it's uh, really about you. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of times people aren't talking about us at all (laughs) when they're doing that. So then to find a way to give, to not accept that gift takes a lot of honesty, real honesty with ourselves to make that distinction. But it is important. The Buddha listened to lots of other kinds of talk. He had, there were people who came to, to talk about their, their problems, and you know, sometimes someone in deep grief would come. Is anybody experienced in the, in the process of grieving? Here tonight? Yeah. There always are. Every crowd, 
every group, every time you gather with people, just know there are going to be people in the room who are, are experiencing grief. And I don't know if you've heard about uh, the woman named Patachara. She was um, the daughter of a wealthy family in Savati, where the Buddha spent a lot of his time in the city of Savati. And without going into the whole story, she gave birth um, during a stormy night and was out. She was trying to make her way back to her parents' house. And her husband and her toddler were with her, and they got caught in a storm, and she gave birth in the storm. And the husband was bitten by a poisonous snake and died. And then she took the newborn and the toddler with her and tried to make it back to her parents' house. And in route, crossing a swollen river because of the storm, the toddler was swept away, and the newborn was picked up by a hawk and carried off. It's a true story. And she continued on and found out that her parents and her brother had both all been killed because their house collapsed during the storm, killed them all. She lost her whole family in one day. And she went mad. And she just, out of her mind, tore off her clothes, wandering through Savati, and she comes to uh, the Jeto's Grove, Anatta Pindiga's Park, where the Buddha was teaching and, and staying. And the people around the monastery tried to keep her out. You just don't usually let, you know, crazy people come into the monastery like that. Um, but the Buddha saw her, and he told them to bring her to him. And he said, Sister, regain your mindfulness. And she did. And um, then he taught her the Dhamma. And then he said, which is here in the Dhammapada, this is one of the little books that's back there for you if you want it. For one who is assailed by death, there is no protection by kinsmen. None there are to save him, no sons, nor father, nor relatives. Realizing this fact, let the wise person, restrained by morality, hasten to clear the path leading to Nibbana. And just, just like that, she became a stream enterer, attained the first level of, of enlightenment. She saw impermanence. She saw how everything's falling apart in that moment. This is another part of listening. Listening to the Dhamma in a way that our mind is so open that we can actually let that wisdom come. There are many examples of this in the canon. Many, many people became enlightened just by listening to the Dhamma. 
the story of Venerable Sariputta. So he was uh, one of the chief two chief disciples of the Buddha. He was newly ordained, but not an arahant yet. And he was standing behind the Buddha as the Buddha was giving a Dhamma talk to a skeptic, another kind of person the Buddha would, of course, listen to and, and, and speak with in a way that could bring truth into the conversation. And as he was listening to the Buddha, at the end of what the Buddha told this, this skeptical person in front of him, Sariputta, became an arahant right in that moment. And the skeptic became a stream enterer. <laughs> there are many examples of this, and it's still happening today. You go to listen to a, a Dharma master talk about the reality of greed, hatred, and delusion, talk about the reality of the way that everything that arises ceases. And that can come right into the heart and give us a perspective we've never had before, just like that. Sometimes people can get pretty, I know this from the inside, sometimes we can get pretty identified with our stories, with who we think we are, and we may feel the need to repeat that story or those stories again and again and again and again. Have you ever had this experience? And there's, there's a point where that becomes unproductive. And sometimes it's very hard for us to see that. So as we listen to ourselves, we might catch it if we're looking for it. But most of the time, I think it happens when we're not even aware that we're becoming obsessed or that we're becoming identified with what happened, what we think happened. Or that we're developing a perspective on life that continues to show us how wronged we are. Instead of seeing the positive. So the Buddha's approach isn't to overemphasize either side, but to try to see as clearly as possible what is true. You know, when you talk about greed, hatred, and delusion, delusion's really the toughest one to see, right? Because of its nature, it's delusion. <laughs> but one way to catch a glimpse of it is if we can't see both sides of a question or of an experience. So some of us can go through decades blaming our parents for all the things they did to us. And we forget to look at all the things they did for us. And I know it's tricky to, to say that because some of us 
go through true misery in our childhood. And yet, the Buddha, in the first pages of the Dhammapada, says to us, if we think this person abused me, struck me, overpowered me, robbed me, if we harbor those thoughts, we'll never get over hatred. But if we don't, if, if those thoughts about how I was abused, struck, overpowered, robbed, if we don't har- harbor those thoughts, if we don't keep emphasizing those thoughts, we turn our attention to a fuller spectrum, we can still hatred in ourselves. So it's something to just be conscious of, aware of, and ask ourselves, okay, is, is this time around when I'm talking about this story of my life, is this, is this leading me to happiness? Is this leading me to more peace? Or is this reemphasizing something that is time to let go of? Now, it's tricky because we do need that period of working through things. What is going to happen as we work through things? We become clear. That's really important, to become clear about what's abusive and what isn't, what really happened. And, that, and to know that we don't ever have to put ourselves intentionally or unintentionally into that situation again. We can be aware and clear and stay away from that. Does that make sense? What I find is it's not so much the repetition of the story that helps. It's the seeing, the clarity around what's wholesome and unwholesome in it. When we get really clear, and we're also able to see our part. Now, when you're a young child, there's not much your there's not your part there. But to in in most of our interactions, especially as adults, we have a part in it. You know, did I willingly continue to work in that abusive environment because I wanted something? Well, sure. I have to I have to own that, and that helps empower. Us. So I can remember a whole period of time, a long time, when I was so dissatisfied, so dissatisfied with a number of things and people in my life. And it took realizing, first of all, that that crummy feeling that we have because we're not getting what we want or Things aren't going the way we want them to or the things I care about are disappearing and all of that. That's normal. But I was thinking, you know, I'm doing all the things I should be doing and I still feel crummy. Why? It's got to be somebody's fault. (laughs) So, well, it's because that person's not quite the way I want them to be and that situation isn't quite the way I want it to be. But once I met up with the Dhamma and the Buddha made it clear that, you know, the, the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the dissatisfaction by not getting what we want or losing what we had or 
just birth, aging, sickness, and death. That there's dukkha. There's suffering around those things. It's part of our. It's part of this experience in samsara. Once I got that point, I didn't have to go around blaming people all the time, <laughs> and I could start to be more balanced about what was really happening. So it doesn't mean that there's no abuse in the world. We need to clearly identify it, clearly decide what we're going to do about it. The Buddha didn't let that go on. The Buddha spoke differently to the people who were in front of him because they were in different places, but he didn't bend his dhamma. It was clear and straight all the time. You never get the feeling reading the suttas that the Buddha is talking to somebody and then someone else comes in and he kind of changes his... (laughs) None of that. I know I've done that in the past. That's an easy one to do. Mindfulness, of course, is... the perfect place to train and practice listening, being fully aware when we're speaking that we're speaking, being fully aware when we're listening that we're listening. You know this passage probably in the Satipatthana Sutta where he says, when one, it, one who acts in full awareness, when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awa- awareness when flexing and extending her limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing her, sh- her robes and carrying her outer robe and bowl. So for you it's not quite the same outfit, but same idea. Acting in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting. Acting in full awareness when defecating and urinating. Acting in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. Full awareness means that we really understand what's, as much as we can what's happening. And that full awareness in, in our listening helps to bring clarity to the situation. And in that clarity, there's also compassion. The Buddha, I love reading the, the suttas because the Buddha spoke in a way that had compassion in it, even if he was pointing out You're on the wrong track. What you did there was stupid. There was always this understanding. Of course, he was the Buddha, so he knew what people's potential would be. But there was always this understanding that the only reason I'm saying this is because I care.
And if we really do care, and we really aren't shutting someone off because we're sick of it, of our own, we've got our own greed, our own hatred, our own delusion, our own stuff, if we're really there caring, then there's a lot more that we can say. It doesn't mean that people are going to like to hear it. But if we're clear, maybe at some point it will, it will help. So the last part of this title that I gave was listening to the earth. And you already know from the announcements that I'm concerned about our climate because it's heading in a direction where we're going to have a tremendous amount of suffering on this planet if we don't change. Someone came up earlier during the stretch break and said that the experience she's having is that she talks with people who are very bright and well-educated, but they think that if we keep going the way we're going, it's going to be fine. Things aren't going to change that much. That is completely counter to all scientific evidence at this point. The uh, ice is melting much more rapidly in everywhere than anyone predicted. There's a tremendous amount going on, and in fact, the American Association for the Advancement of Science says that wherever we live in America, people are experiencing the effects that are already observable in climate change. We have such a tremendous opportunity now to listen to what's happening to the planet, listen to what's happening to our systems, um, listen to what's happening to other people in other parts of the world who are experiencing already rising sea levels. Um, I, I talked to a person who runs a copy shop the other day from India, and he said that back home in India that people can't, the farmers can't grow the same crops that they've grown for thousands of years. And the government is telling them they have to grow new crops because the climate has changed. It's changing. So the listening part, just like this honesty that we need to have when we listen to ourselves or when we listen to others, we have to have that same honesty, that, that fearlessness as we listen to the observable data and the understanding of how that's all connected to our, our structures, our systems, and then step forward and with a tremendous amount of love and courage to be able to participate with hundreds of thousands, millions of other people who care about what's happening. Thank you. As well. And want to see a healthy world for all the, the children that are coming 
I have uh, two grandchildren. I wasn't born a nun. I entered the monastic life when I was 51 years old. That was nine years ago. I am now 60. Believe me, I can tell. Everything that arises does cease. (laughs) It's kind of on the skids, but (laughs) it's okay. But I have a, a daughter who has two children, so my granddaughter just graduated from kindergarten. And I went to the program, and they were so adorable. And there were so many parents and grandparents in that hall. I was so amazed to see how supported all these young people are. And their teachers were so sensitive and sharp and aware and and bright and loving. And how proud they were of each and every one of these little youngsters who are already so smart and know how to use iPhones and, you know, everything. (laughs) And when I see all those beautiful faces and I see all those family members and those teachers and the people who are putting this school together and doing such an amazingly good job and all the care, and I think we want them to have a future. We want them to have a livable, livable planet. We need to come together and make sure that happens. And right now we're on a course to destruction and we're not turning. So it is up to us. We do have to take action. And we have a responsibility here that I think is more and an opportunity that's greater than almost anywhere in the world. Why is that? Because the world still follows America. The executive director of Greenpeace International told a, a few of us on a phone call with him that if, the, if America shifts from fossil fuels to renewable energy, he guarantees that China will follow. That was astounding to me and inspiring. And then if you look at America, what state tends to lead... The flow. It's California. So we have this responsibility and we have this great opportunity to show people. And there I must tell you, I am I'm a fully ordained bhikkhuni in the most conservative tradition in Buddhism. So the most conservative of the most conservative, and believe me, there is criticism for doing something like going to a march or speaking out about these things. People think it's political. It's not political. There's nothing political about the climate. There's nothing tied to religion about the climate except the moral issue, and that's really what we've got on our hands, a mammoth moral issue of how we care about other beings and care about the beauty of nature and care about species that will go extinct and care about the people who are 
struggling already with um, not having water where they are. And so there is this tremendous opportunity to really live our faith, to really live our dharma, to really live our compassion and take action. The, the beautiful thing about it is the action is peaceful. The action isn't against anyone. First time in human history, we are all in this one together. And this is action for everyone, even the people who still think they can you know, dig up all the fossil fuels and frack and tar sands and everything else and destroy um, everything in sight to get the last carbon out of the earth. They are also going to suffer and are suffering from this thing. It's a little like that discernment about listening. If your friend is continuing after five or ten years to talk about the same wrong and justice, it may be the time to say, you got to turn it around, honey. You're a grown-up. you got to take, take hold of this and change what you're focused on. What we focus on makes all the difference. And that's what we need to do to help the destructive practices that we're experiencing but it's not against the people. We want their grandchildren to have a good world too. And they will too when they start to get the idea um, of what's really happening. So I just want to encourage everyone. There's many ways to take action, and I've learned from experience that being involved is a joyful experience. It's inspiring, it's exhilarating, and it's very true to the principles of the Dharma. So I am so happy to have sort of friends, allies, community from all different religions. Um, I've been working together with this sort of national planning for this climate march where all the different faiths are represented. And it's just a beautiful thing to hear about each faith's way of looking at this and each way of being inspired to do the right thing. It's really wonderful. So if you ever feel depressed or despairing, just call me up. <laughs> we'll do something good together. <laughs> um, so I'd like to now open the floor for questions and uh, comments. Yes. Thank you. You can ask me anything. doesn't have to be about the topic. Yeah, let me... Hi, and I too echo that appreciation. <laughs> I'm just curious to know, what was it like to go from living in the world of the ordinary to the world you live in today? Oh, well, it was quite a process for me um, that started um, back probably really in 1998 when my son decided to become a monk in Thailand. 
And I went to Thailand and lived in the monastery um, for some period of time each year. And I learned a tremendous amount there. And I was a layperson, so I'd go back to my normal life. And then I would start to go up to the monastery near Ukiah, a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery, and I would um, spend as much time as I could there. And then, you know, there, that that kind of shock of going back and, t- back and forth would happen. Um, so it was a process, and a lot of things changed. Like I started just wearing two dresses, alternating each day, kind of making my own uniform, kind of setting things down, getting rid of things, changing. I was changing. And uh, then the process, once you decide to ordain and you go through the different levels, that's also a process, and you get used to things as you go. So you start keeping, I started keeping eight precepts all continually, even though I wasn't living in the monastery yet, and I hadn't ordained yet. Then going into the monastery and shaving my head and wearing white, and that went on for five years. So I had a lot of time to get used to that form. <laughs> and then the part where you give up using money. Now that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, give up using money and driving. And um, so ba- basically that's my answer. It was a process. And now, you know, there's all kinds of things that I don't do, that I don't participate in, and I don't miss it at all. There's all kinds of things that I had before that I don't have anymore, and I don't miss them at all. <laughs> so I think the important things are are really there, and the things I love to do, like studying the Buddhist teachings and learning Pali and practicing and talking with people. People come with every kind of problem to the monastery, and I love being with that. Is it on? Um, have you encountered any inequalities or imbalances between the genders in your tradition? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I'd like to hear a little about that. Thank you. Um, sure. I mean, the the beautiful thing is, I had a, I, in a retreat I was uh, teaching. A woman said she's so angry with herself for for being in this tradition that's so, um, got so much gender bias. And I said, wait, whoa, what? that's not true? Because the Buddha ordained women with the same ordination he gave to men. And I don't really, I might just be um, unaware of another world religion like that, but as far as I know, I, ha- I don't think that the original teacher did that in any of the religions I know about. So the... Um, the reality is that the Buddha had that gender equality happening already. You know, people will point to the parts of the Vinaya um, where the nuns are expected to to pay respect to the monks, and the nuns' order will always be um, junior to the monks' order. But I think that was absolutely essential in the time in the culture, because in that culture, in that time, and still in other places in the world today, if a woman isn't connected to a father, a husband, a son, someone, some man to protect her, she's open, she's fair game, she's at risk. 
So if the Buddha is going to have all these women leaving their families and leaving their home life, how, how are they going to be protected? And the way that they could be protected is by having the, the male sangha be kind of in that position of, of protector. But he didn't do that one-on-one in any way. So the, 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 women, the, the women's side can do all the same things that the monks can do, you know, in terms of ceremony or, or... And the Buddha was very clear that the nuns developed their psychic powers. They developed their ability to teach the Dhamma, their facility with the Vinaya. They, they did all of those things as the, the monks did. The Buddha never said there was any kind of limit on one's ability to, a woman's ability to excel um, at all. So fast forward 2,500 years and you still have societies that are very gender biased. And you have monastic forms existing within those societies and you have monastics affected by it. So I certainly have experienced plenty of gender bias. And um, I'm really glad to be living here in the Bay Area where people are like, sure, why not be a bhikkhuni? (laughs) Why not be fully ordained? And there are monks who see beyond that who help uh, make that possible. So that's my experience. Yes. Thank you for everything you shared tonight. It was, it was great. Um, the thing that really stuck with me from your talk was mentioning the importance of avoiding gossip and idle chatter, and it's something I've been working, trying to work on. And um, and, I, and the, I think the challenging thing about it, I think it's something very universal, especially in the workplace, that we um, we all want to talk about others. And the challenging thing, I think it's because... Um, we we deal with difficult people that we're forced into contact with and when we share that with each other it can be bonding and therapeutic and and that's what i find really challenging do you have any advice for how to do that or or what the what the buddha had to say about that i'm very glad you're bringing that up so one thing that the buddha did every time someone came to him and said so and so is doing such and such is he said would you tell them to come see me? He never started right in telling them, you shouldn't be doing that. He would always ask them, is this true? Are you doing that? So that's one thing to always remember. It's very difficult when anyone tells us something about someone to not just pick it up whole and believe it or start letting that be a filter in how we see that person's actions. But we need to be disciplined and make sure that we know ourselves that that's true. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, when you need to talk to someone about what's happening, it's very important to choose that person carefully and make sure that that's really a sacred container so that we do need to talk about what's going on, especially when we're confused. And if it's an abusive situation, confusion is part of it. It's one of the indicators that it is abusive when you feel really confused. So what's necessary is to be able to find a way to process this 
so that you can come to clarity. And as you say, if you're processing together with someone else who's experiencing it too, you may gain clarity, but you may just gain revving up the emotions around it. And that's important to be discerning about so that it's not the best to talk with that person about it. It's better to talk with someone who's going to keep things confidential, who's not going to just take your side and go, rah, 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 isn't that guy a jerk? But really, to just try to really honestly evaluate what's happening. Why might this other person be acting in this way? What are the pressures they are under? And again, coming back to trying to see all the sides. So delusion is happening when we don't see the other side. You know, it's like when you fall in love and that person just has no flaws. There's delusion there. <laughs> when you're working for someone and that person, you can't think of one good thing about them, there's delusion there. And so we have to just, we have to be aware of that. And then pull away from those, having those conversations repeatedly that build up the animosity. Because that is, that is you know, not really wise attention. Thanks. Any other questions? He's getting a workout. Um, When you talk about listening and having traveled to very remote places where I don't speak the language and just observing how much people talk, even when it doesn't seem like there's much going on, I, I've won, it's been very interesting to, to see just how much human beings speak all the time. But how, uh, when you have a friend that you love very dearly, like a sister, but this person will ramble about their process, everything's, every single thing that they do, uh, where you can't get a word in edgewise and you feel like it's not healthy, how do you point that out compassionately uh, without having to take a step back from a friendship, but you want them to maybe notice that they're going around in circles a lot and it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's very one-sided. Yeah. I think it really is important to find a way to say it. I mean, there are, you know, ways of saying how much you love this person, you know, I really care about you, I really want to know what's going on, and I feel like this is going in circles. And then, you know, whatever it is that you feel like are the right words, to just say a little bit and see what happens. Most of the time, we, we need... Um, I can't come up with the right metaphor. We need this little mallet and we get out a sledgehammer because we've been holding back so long (laughs) and we think they're not going to get it. So I think a little something, you know, like, you know, and and maybe um, an alternative, you know, like I I really want to have a conversation, but let's try... Let's try a time limit. Or let's try, I don't know, you know, just try to be something creative, but just a little something. 
and then see if that starts to change things. It depends on her character, really, how quickly she'll pick it up. Some people pick something up right away and are so hurt that it makes it hard to get beyond that for a while. And other people are just like, they don't hear, they don't hear the sledgehammer, <laughs> they don't feel it. <laughs> you know? So kind of take it a little step at a time and then see if it's going in the right direction. And at the same time, we have to monitor our own feelings so that we're not doing this out of our own greed, hatred, or delusion. But it will help. It will help her if she can hear it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your talk. Um, one of the things that came by that I've always had a kind of a issue with in terms of the teaching. You read that long list of things that people shouldn't talk about. Well, they're actually monks and nuns who should. And that's what I was about, about to say. For monks and nuns, you know, that's really yeah. appropriate. Yes. But for us householders, just having casual chatter and casual conversation is really a way of making connections and making contact with each other. You go yeah. to a party and you meet somebody. You say, "Oh, how do you know the host or hostess?" It's really superficial stuff. You know, the Buddha did the starting, same thing. It's the start of a conversation. You say, "You know, yeah. what do you do for a living?" And that goes a little deeper. So it may be idle chatter, but nevertheless, it's a way of opening a channel of communication between people. And I can understand for, you know, for monastics that doesn't work, but for Well, actually, like me, for monastics it does work. We do that all the time, and you'll see in every, almost every sutta when someone comes to visit the Buddha, they have this amiable talk in the beginning. And so we're not, we're not saying, I mean, that was a list that the Buddha gave to the monks, but it's like, you see the purpose behind that talk. And that's good. That's a good purpose. There are times when we, it doesn't seem maybe like it's that substantive, but actually the feeling behind it, the bonding that's being created, the, the connection, just being able to kind of express your caring and openness and interest in knowing the person, that's all valid. So I'm glad you brought that up so that we... Because we have to be more nuanced in our understanding. It doesn't mean that this exact thing is always the right thing or always the wrong thing. We have to be really aware. So I think the idle chatter part is, you know, how much are we going to be focused on a TV show that happened? Or, you know, there are lots of things that I think if you think about it are things that really aren't worth talking about. And it goes beyond that kind of congenial talk. And where we put our attention shapes us, and it shapes our karma. So it's worth... But I appreciate your comment because it's true. And I'm glad you brought that up so we don't get out of balance on that. Well, it's 9.30, and I was told we have to like disappear in a puff of smoke about now. <laughs> So I think you have a, something you do at the end? Dedication of merit. Do you have your own style of that? or would Whatever I do is fine. Well, I think that I will chant the dedication of merit that's in this chanting book, if I can find it. This is our 
common one in the monastery. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, and that's our practice, by the way, may our spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest devas and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and illusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.